This is Chapter 41 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. What does it take to achieve great personal success? Coming up, best-selling author and podcast host Tim Ferriss shares the advice he got from some of the world's most successful people. Could you use some life or career advice? Well, you're in luck. In his new book, Tribe of Mentors, Short Life Advice from the Best in the World, Tim Ferriss has brought together more than 100 of the world's best experts from all walks of life to share their tips for success. He recently visited our studios and sat down with our Ray Hoffman to talk about it. I want to start with um, the new book, Tribe of Mentors. It hit the stores yesterday. So based on your previous four number one bestsellers, I assume if it hit the stores yesterday... It's probably triple platinum by today, right? <laughs> Very fortunate that it seems to be uh, doing rather well and uh, very happy. Very happy with how it turned out. And you probably have overnight metrics, right? I do, yeah. I'm, I'm someone who obsesses, and that's not always a good thing, but obsesses over numbers and quantification. I really like to measure things so that I can manage them. So I do pay a lot of attention to the numbers for sure. Now, there's an oft-repeated quote in the New York Times, a story about you a few years ago, that described you as a cross between Jack Welch, the former GE CEO, and a Buddhist monk. Now, my question is, because I appreciate the fact that you're a great questioner, my question is, if you were writing that article yourself, how would you describe yourself? A cross between (laughs) what and what? I I think their description is very generous. I would say... If I had to take a stab at it, I would say maybe a combination of Groucho Marx and uh, George Plimpton, who a lot of people my age don't even know, but uh, very much an investigative journalist, if you would call it that, who would say, try to become a professional football player for Mm -hmm. a week and suffer all the damage and injuries involved with that and then write about the experience, or a professional boxer or a trapeze artist. So he's trying to do these things himself, often failing spectacularly and then writing about them. So Groucho Marx, George Plimpton, and then that combination aspiring to be more like Richard Feynman, the physicist who is also <laughs> extremely curious, bongo player, safe cracker, who uh, was, a, was a spectacular teacher. He was very good at making the complex simple. So that's what I would say. Yeah, But the aspiring to be, Richard Feynman's important. Not, I do not think I'm of that caliber, but I aspire to be. Aspiring to be. Yeah, in my high school yearbook, under my name, it says Groucho. So big influence on me. About George Plimpton, though, that raises an interesting question. Mm-hmm. Did you discover George Plimpton before you became this adventurer writer? Yeah. Or did you become an adventurer writer and then realize that George Plimpton had preceded you? So... This this answer has some backstory. I actually went to high school. I transferred around in school and ended up at one point in the same school as his son. And people said, his father is so-and-so, George Plimpton. And I shrugged my shoulders. I had no idea who right. George Plimpton was. Seemed like an important guy. Yeah, I'm, he- I'm happy for the fam. All right. So then graduate. Flash forward 15, 20 years. I have become this dabbler and human guinea pig doing these various experiments and writing about it and someone said you know you remind me of George Plimpton I said I've heard that name before why do I remind you of George Plimpton they recommended a documentary that had just came out I watched it and I said now wait a minute Ah. this is someone I should study 
And uh, that's how I became reacquainted with George Plunton. Mm -hmm. Now the book, Tribe mm -hmm. of Mentors, it's kind of a sequel to your previous bestseller. What's different about it? In a way, yeah. The format is very similar to the last book because uh, the readers loved the short, bite-sized profiles with lots of actionable recommendations. They loved the format, so I borrowed the same format. Otherwise, it's a very, very different book. Tribe of Mentors effectively came out of a very, very difficult, very intense year for me. And I think 2017 was a very hard year for a lot of people. Raised a lot of questions, at the very least. And uh, I had the 10th anniversary of my first book, which coincided to the day with me getting on the TED main stage for the first time to talk about a very close brush with suicide in college and how I contended with that and the emotional safety nets I built for myself, which was a really weird, surreal juxtaposition for me. No one expected it because I tossed out the TED talk I was supposed to do a week beforehand and then redid it, uh, which is not <laughs> something you're supposed to do. Uh, and around that same time, within a matter of weeks, several of my close friends died of both natural causes, but unexpected, and accidents. So I, I hit pause on everything and just started reassessing my life and asking a lot of questions I had trouble answering. So I then realized, perhaps I'm making this harder than it needs to be. What if I s took these 11 questions, uh, well, I should say primarily four or five questions, added a few, and sent them out to, say, 100 people who are the best at what they do? who range in age from 25 to 80, and pose these questions to them, to cheat, basically, mm -hmm. so that I could hear their responses, their playbooks for life, and hopefully figure out next directions, how to better prioritize, how to more effectively say no to things that I felt I had to do out of obligation or guilt or whatever. And uh, the responses formed the basis for Tribe of Mentors, and that's, that's how it came about. And I should say another big difference is that in the last book, uh, 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 Tools of Titans, I'd say 95% of the people in the book had been on my podcast previously. This book is an entirely new cast of characters, uh, so only about 5% have been on the podcast. The rest are brand new. Yeah, and I want to talk about your crafting of questions. In the book you write, the older I get, the more I uh, spend as a percentage of time each day writing questions. Can you take me inside that process? I can, I can. Uh, I've I really realized in the last, I'd say, three years, <clears throat> I always knew questions were important because if I hoped to, say, dissect or deconstruct an expert in skill X, whether it's ultra-endurance uh, ultra running or could be life extension, it doesn't really matter what the field is, to distill it and then convey my findings to my readers what I was able to unearth was directly a result of the questions I asked. So I knew the importance of questions, but in the last three years in particular, having the opportunity to practice with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, someone new every week, uh, I've, I've really come to appreciate that you can get anything you want in life out of someone else's head, if this makes sense. right? So someone else has done something similar to what you're hoping to do. Or if you have demons you're battling, someone else has battled the same demons. And to get that gold though, you have to mine with pickaxes and the pickaxes are good questions. So I spend, and this is also true uh, for any type of critical thinking or problem solving or uh, internal 
dialogue. Uh, if you want to think more clearly and effectively, you're asking and answering better questions in your own head. So over time, I've just tested and tested. That's what I do. Dozens and hundreds of questions and slowly figured out some of the ingredients that make, say, a good question into a great question. And the results are not, say, if a good question gets a an 60 out of 100 ranking of uh, good answer. When you go from good to great uh, question, it's not like you go from 60 to 70 out of 100. You go to, from 60 to 95 out of 100. It's a huge difference. Uh, so those, that's how I think about it. And I, I practice questions a lot on myself when I journal in the mornings. So I, I do a lot of journaling in the mornings. And I can see how clear or unclear my answers are, how helpful or unhelpful my answers are to my own questions when I pose them if I'm grappling with an opportunity or a problem of some type. Uh, so I'm constantly fine-tuning and tweaking these questions. And you mentioned that the sequencing of the questions is the secret sauce. It is, it is, it really is. And also, the secret sauce in learning any skill, whether you're trying to acquire a language or learn to swim. I didn't learn to swim until I was in my 30s. The sequencing, the order in which you place things in a logical progression is really, really important. So for instance, you know, in Tribe of Mentors, there's some really, I don't want to say heavy, but um, labor-intensive, brain-intensive questions uh, that, that sometimes novice interviewers make the mistake of leading with. I did this too. So if you're going to ask someone, you know, if you could only give one piece of advice to a graduating senior and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and it's a high-pressure question that requires some thinking, to lead with that usually gets bad results. So instead, maybe you warm up the interviewee with questions that provide, A, a really useful answer for the listener or reader, like, if you look back over the past year or just in recent memory, uh, what book or books have you gifted the most to other people? All right, most people are going to have a go-to list of, say, two to five books that they gift. That is a better question than, for instance, what are your favorite books, which is problematic for a whole host of reasons. Number one, the search query, just like something you put into Google, is too broad. You're going to get really bad results uh, for that, and it requires a lot of time. And for the people I'm interviewing who are very often high-profile uh, they're going to worry about being, say, quoted in Wikipedia for the rest of their lives as having their favorite book be X. But mm-hmm. most gifted, lower risk. So I'll warm them up with some really specific questions like that. And then once they're comfortable with me, they don't feel like I'm going to throw any gotchas at them or any curveballs, then I can ask the what would you put on a billboard type questions that would reach billions of people. What would be a word or several words or a quote or a quote of someone else that you would put on this billboard to convey to all of these many millions or billions of people. But I don't start with that. And the, the, the sequencing is definitely the secret sauce. And that's true not only in questions, but in trying to learn a new skill, trying to teach a new skill, trying to resolve a conflict. The, mm-hmm. the sequence in which you do things is the secret sauce. And I imagine also, as an early stage tech investor, Uber, Twitter, yeah. Facebook, yeah. Uh, Shopify, a number yeah. of companies that you've yeah. invested in, I'm wondering, is there 
is there a time when you have asked a series, a sequence of questions whose answers have told you not to make this investment? Oh, 100%. Absolutely. And uh, uh, very, very much so. So I, I have my questions for, say, interviewing someone on my podcast. I have questions for instance, if I'm trying to assess a potential uh, romantic partner, I have certain questions that I might use there. And not to sound like a robot, but like you can get better at these things, so why not learn <laughs> from your mistakes? And then in investing, absolutely. I mean, I'll, and I will very often open with very, very broad questions. And this is, del this is very deliberate in an investing capacity. I might just say... Mm -hmm. Because people want your money. They want my money, and they've practiced their pitches. Mm -hmm. And uh, I will very often, it's not a negotiation, but it's similar in the respect that I will give them a chance to mess it up in the beginning. Give them a chance to disqualify the company and the team as worth investing in. So I, I might just ask them, you know, how did you come to create this company? And if there are three people there who are the co-founders, well, I can observe who tries to jump in, who cuts off who, and observe the interpersonal dynamics. Or if someone jumps in and says, well, actually, that's not really true, I do this, and I say, well, that's not really, you guys should probably coordinate before you get in front of an investor so you don't look like a divided team, right? And I don't say that out loud, but these are the things I might think. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'll, I'll throw a, a broad question that multi multiple people could answer out in the beginning just to observe that. And uh, then once they've done that, <clears throat> and they should have a well-rehearsed answer for that question because they're going to get asked a million times. And if they don't, that reflects a lack of preparation on their part. Uh, and then I might say, who else has invested in the company in, in previous rounds of financing, if that's something that's already happened? Uh, but who, who's been the most valuable investor and why? What makes them so value-add? And uh, I should point out also that, well, this is actually borrowing or stealing from Voltaire. I didn't come up with this. But judging someone based on their questions, not on their answers, right? So you can learn a lot by how long they let you ask questions before they start asking questions. And then observing whether they ask you questions they could have already found good answers to with five minutes on Google, right? What companies have you already invested in reflects lack of due diligence, right? Uh, or are they asking very, very specific questions that reflect homework uh, and, and so on. And then there are all the boring ones that they should have or need to have answers to, which are, you know, describe your capital table. Do you, do you consider your cap table a clean cap table? And to throw some like, technical nitty-gritty questions to them so that I get a feel for how quantitatively comfortable they am or how forthcoming they are. You know, do they try to hide things? Sometimes that makes sense. Very often that's really detrimental. Uh, and uh, those are some of the approaches that, that I'll take. A lot of it is reading the interpersonal dynamics uh, and, and seeing how I feel when I'm around these people. So the questions are, are in some respects a pretext for paying attention, and this is going to sound really primitive, but paying attention to spider sense. If I get a good, f and I, I paid very little attention to this in the beginning, but if I get, if I feel good about someone, it doesn't mean I should invest. Okay. Because naturally born salespeople are going to make you feel, feel good. good. Yeah. Right? They have that reality distortion field, like a Steve Jobs or pick, 
pick your leader, right? I mean, Bezos, they can all do the, these are not the droids you are looking for, and be really, really magically gifted at it. So if I feel good about someone, that doesn't mean I should invest. I still need to qualify. But if I feel off around someone, if I feel uncomfortable, if I get the heebie-jeebies or a little bit of a tingle that makes me uncomfortable with someone, that means I should absolutely not invest. And nothing they can say should convince me otherwise. Every time that I have overridden that, it's turned into a disaster. Every single time, 100%. So uh, those are a few of the things that I think about. And it's, it's more involved, certainly, than just that. But, uh, and I would also say that if you ask all of the questions and the team gives you a great feeling and you look at the fundamentals of the business and it's fan- it, it paints a fantastic picture and there are great people who have already been involved but the price or the deal structure doesn't make a lot of sense. Great company, great team, bad deal equals bad deal. Right? Simple so, as that. It's as simple as that. And uh, yeah, great product, wrong price, doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So those are, those are a few of the things that I've thought about. And you know, ultimately, the, uh, the portfolio ended up being, because I was in Silicon Valley and I started in 2007, so over 10 years, but I, I actually stopped all of my tech about two years ago for a bunch of reasons. But <clears throat> I think the, the tsunami is coming and not in a good way. But uh, ended up with between, I'd say, 50 and 70 companies in the portfolio in total. And uh, it's been a good ride. I've learned a lot. Certainly had a good, good, healthy dose of luck and good timing at the same time. So, well, why do you think a tsunami is coming? Uh, another two thousand? Do you mean? Uh, yeah, I think the the dynamics are slightly different than two thousand. I mean, from a macroeconomic standpoint, there are a lot of differences. But I think uh, all of these things move in cycles. We've we've been. Uh, Man, have we been getting eggs from the golden goose for a long time now. <laughs> and uh, the, one of the indicators for me that things are probably close to uh, sort of turning the corner and going the opposite direction is when a lot of fair weather entrepreneurs, especially, and fair weather investors come into tech, which is in the early stages historically very volatile, very high risk. So when people in more uh, conventional, not by conventional uh, do I mean staid or inflexible, but uh, lower risk career paths like management consulting, investment banking, where there's a higher degree of predictability and they start to come in and become founders of companies because they view it as lower risk uh, or low-ish risk, high reward, that reflects to me uh, an inherent sort of systemic problem that will result efe- uh, eventually in complete collapse. Uh, and uh, I've seen that happen twice already. I've been on the roller coaster and I've, I've seen it firsthand twice. I have no reason to believe it won't happen again. And rather than try to wait until the last minute <laughs> before pulling the ripcord, I decided two years ago for uh, for many different reasons, including some I just tried to describe, uh, to hang up the jersey for startup investing and wait until the game's a little easier. It's a hard enough playing field to step onto as it is without all the noise that's created by a surplus of capital and a surplus of um, 
normally risk-averse fairweather entrepreneurs. Makes, it makes the, the deck even harder to play with. And uh, to quote uh, Colonel Hackworth, famous military figure, uh, if, you f- if you find yourself in a fair fight, you didn't plan your mission properly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll just wait until there's, uh, this sounds morbid, but metaphorically speaking, blood in the streets, and yeah. which is coming. It always happens. And then only the diehard will remain. That makes it a lot easier. Now, Colonel Hackworth is in the book. He's one of the people you ask the questions of. But I notice a large proportion of uh, I- extreme sports people, CrossFit uh, trainers and um, uh, fitness gurus, fellow bloggers also, yeah. chess players, poker and players. poker players. Why poke? Why so many poker players yeah. in this book? Yeah, a lot of poker players, uh, a lot of investors. I mean, Ray, you know, Ray Dalio. Yeah, but also. why so many poker players? I'll tell you. In the I'll book? tell you. So, poker players to me reflect frameworks and systems of thinking. So, the best poker players are very good at observing their own emotions and also using logic and rational decision-making and probabilities to make decisions even when they might be upset or angry. And the types of, say, questions they ask themselves, the way they look at the world is something that you can copy and paste into your life even if you don't play poker. That's why I find them so interesting because not only... Are they trying to make extremely calculated decisions with the risk or reward of chance involved, like life? There are things you can control, but there are many things you can't control. And in poker, there are many things you can control. You can do all the math in the world, but you still get really crappy hands, right? You still might, boom, flop, bad card, you're out. But even if you did everything right, you made all the best decisions. So they also learn... This is true in chess. This is true in investing. At the highest levels, they separate process from outcome. So they reward themselves or pat themselves on the back or criticize themselves based on whether or not they followed their best rules or broke their own rules. They reward or or chastise themselves based on whether they followed good process or bad process. And the outcome is separate because you could have a great outcome by going all in in a poker game, but you, it's, it's completely haphazard. It's cavalier. You have no math behind it. It's just a stupid emotional pounding of the chest and a bunch of bravado, and you win. Well, you follow a terrible process, terrible, terrible, terrible process that's going to lose 99 times out of 100, and you got a good outcome. That will lead some people to try the same thing over and over again, then they lose all their money. On the flip side, you might have somebody who follows everything correctly and then they have a really bad outcome or they lose five times in a row. The good poker player is going to continue to do the same thing because he or she is following good process and over time they know because they've, they've done the hard thinking beforehand that they will end up winning. It's the same thing as rules-based trading. It absolutely is. So whether it's investing in tech startups, whether it's investing in equities, uh, whether it's investing in yourself in various ways, uh, or having conversations with coworkers and, or, and employees, uh, focusing on process over outcome and really refining the process, because you know over time you'll have good a, a, a 60, 70, 80 percent good outcomes, 
that's the way you want to go. So poker players to me are really fascinating because they take the rules of life and then in a microcosm test them in a game. Mm-hmm. And that's true in chess. There are a lot of chess players. Uh, not, a, not a lot, but three very, very, very talented chess players, in, including grandmasters. And um, I am trying to find, in all of these cases, say with the athletes, you have someone like Kelly Slater, most decorated surfer of all time. But what people may not realize is that he was both the youngest person in history and then, more recently, the oldest person in history to win a world championship. That's amazing. And the longevity and adaptability that he's exhibited can be applied other places in life, even if you never surf. Just like the rules from poker or that these people apply at the highest levels in poker can be applied to the rest of your life. So I'm always looking for experts and world-class performers who have methods, not just attributes, because I can't teach someone to be taller to play basketball, but if someone has a particular method, a way of thinking about the game that makes them better than everyone else, okay, that can, be, that can probably be taught. That can be modeled. That can be imitated. That's exciting to me. So everyone in the book has, to some extent, that ability. Of all the questions in the book, I think I like the billboard question the best. Yeah. You know, if you could have a giant billboard, what would it say? Do you remember when you first thought of that question? I wish I had a specific great story, but I don't. I suspect, I don't remember, but I can say that I very rarely create questions. I do sometimes, uh, and I can think of a few. Um, that I could that I could uh, that I could give, but the billboard answer I'm fairly sure I didn't come up with myself. I did end up tweaking it and fine tuning it over time, but I collect questions. So if I'm on an airplane, I'm reading an in-flight magazine. They always have interviews, and for whatever reason, I come across a question that I really really like. Oh my God, that's amazing! I do it too. I will take a note. I will tear out the page, which I don't know, maybe you're not supposed to do, but I will I will record that question if I'm watching inside the actor's studio, and uh, a question comes up that I really, really like. Well, hey, maybe I'll borrow that. Maybe I'll try that out. I like that question. And in fact, maybe the billboard question is from inside the actor's studio. It sounds like an inside the actor's studio James Lipton question. What is your favorite curse word and why type of thing. <laughs> and he has his own style. Uh, but I very frequently collect questions. And then there are, there are those questions that I come up with based on stories I hear from, say, one guest. And I say, oh, my God, that was such a good story. It's going to help so many people. It came up organically. How can I engineer the conversation such that I get more stories like that? And that might lead to a question like, can you tell us a story about a failure or apparent failure in your life that ended up sowing the seeds of later success? Right? Yeah. That's an important question. Uh, so, so that would be one. Want to hear more? We have the rest of Ray's interview with Tim Ferriss up on our YouTube page. Look for Author Talks at youtube.com slash WCBS 880. And that's this week's podcast. Be sure to check us out next week when we present our holiday gift-giving guide. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.